Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, and welcome to the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. In this episode, I delve into the life of Anne of Cleves. As you may already know, recently I did a survey about who was your favorite queen of Henry VIII. Not surprisingly, Anne Boleyn came in first, but in second place was, yes, you guessed it, Anne of Cleves. On my Tudor's Dynasty Facebook page this week, I asked what is it that you would like to learn about Anne? I discovered you want to know everything. I don't blame you, we know so little about her. So because of that, this will be part one of a part two or part three series. There's just so much to cover. If you've not noticed, I'm not like other podcasters. I do not do hour-long episodes. I find that for the average person, an hour is too long. We all live busy lives, so I try to keep it to 30 minutes max. This is why there are two or maybe three parts to the story of Anne of Cleves. Now, before I get started, I need to do my due diligence and thank those who have supported my social media, my website, and my podcast. I'd like to thank all of my patrons on Patreon who have been with me from the beginning and been such a great support to me. I don't have any new patrons since last week's podcast, so I want to extend another thank you to those who have been with me from the beginning. There are currently 23 of you who support me through Patreon, and I want you to know that your support means the world to me. If you feel the urge to join this amazing group of people, go to patreon.com slash tutorsdynasty and click on become a patron. You can choose the monthly level that fits your budget. For as little as a dollar per month, you can join my inner circle of best friends. If you're not interested in a monthly donation, you can make a one-time donation like some of my other friends have, but please don't feel you have to. Any money you send my way is greatly appreciated, and it all goes back into the everyday costs that go into running this podcast and my website. If you're interested in learning more, send me an email to englishhistoryblogger at gmail.com. That's englishhistoryblogger at gmail.com. With that, thanks to all of you who have been with me from the beginning, those who have joined somewhere in between, and all of you who are first-time listeners. Welcome. Born on the 22nd of September, 1515, in Dusseldorf, Anne of Cleves was the daughter of John III, Duke of Cleves, and Maria Ulickberg. Like Catherine of Aragon, Anne of Cleves had the grandest lineage of any of his other wives. She was descended from Edward I of England and Louis XII of France. Her education was not that of a future queen. It was as a lady who would one day marry a duke or prince. Anne was educated by her mother and could read and write, but only knew German. Anne had not been taught any music as part of her education. This was something that was actually disapproved of in her native Cleves. Anne was the only one of King Henry's wives who was not musical, but her education level was similar to that of Jane Seymour. Throughout all of his marriages, you will find wives with interest in music, save Anne of Cleves. 
The English ambassador did not seem too concerned that Anne could not speak English. He said, "Her wit is so good that no doubt she will, in short space, learn the English tongue, whensoever she put her mind to it." Anne's older sister, Sibylla, was married to John Frederick, the eldest son of the Duke of Saxony, at the age of fourteen. Author Elizabeth Norton says that the marriage was an excellent match, and that the Duke of Cleves was very generous in the terms of the marriage treaty. He provided Sibylla with twenty-five thousand florins and agreed that if his son William died without sons, that John Frederick would become heir to Cleves, with the understanding that he would pay a hundred and sixty thousand florins towards the marriages of Anne and Amelia. So John Frederick had a vested interest in who the daughters married, since he could one day be Duke of Cleves himself. Even before he had finalized the marriage treaty of his eldest daughter, the Duke of Cleves was already working on one for his eleven-year-old daughter Anne. The Duke of Cleves and the Duke of Lorraine had been discussing a possible marriage between their children. The marriage contract was signed on the fifth of June, fifteen twenty-seven, but neither Anne nor Francis were called upon to give their consent to the union, something that was required to make it binding. The betrothal between Anne of Cleves and Francis of Lorraine had been brokered by the Duke of Gilders. In 1527, the Duke of Gilders was childless, and Gilders was claimed by the Duke of Lorraine. In return, the Duke of Cleves would pass his claim to Gilders to his daughter Anne, and she would then marry Francis of Lorraine, who would then be recognized as heir to Gilders. Confused yet? In a nutshell, there was land and money being passed around to make this marriage work. Anne and Francis never met. The couple's marriage treaty had been completely tied up in the fate of Gelders, and nothing was happening on that front. The Duke of Gelders maintained the duchy for many years, but had no real claim to it himself. So essentially, he had no right to name an heir. Luckily for Anne's brother William of Cleves, the Duke of Gelders named him as his heir, and upon his death in 1538, William claimed the duchy for himself. When that happened, the ambassador for Lorraine came to Cleves to awaken the marriage treaty between Anne and Francis. William had no interest in the match, and that was the end of it. As far as they were all concerned, there was never a valid betrothal. In October 1537, Henry VIII's third wife, Jane Seymour, had died, and his advisers almost immediately began looking for a fourth bride. This was the first time that the king did not have a new bride lined up to replace the previous one. The thought now was to acquire Henry, a foreign bride, to build an alliance. The king was currently at odds with Rome and needed an ally. Cleves was perfect, but was not an immediate thought until 1539, when all other options were beginning to fade. In 1539, John III, Duke of Cleves, died. At the time of his death, he was not very excited about a marriage that tied them with the English king. It took until the fourth of September, fifteen thirty-nine, for a marriage treaty to be agreed on. This was delayed by Anne's brother, the Duke of Cleves, consulting John Frederick, Duke of Lorraine, because remember, if William had no sons, then John Frederick would inherit Cleves after William's death. So he definitely cared who Cleves was aligned with. Once the marriage treaty was agreed upon, Anne of Cleves' life changed, putting her in the spotlight. She received a letter of congratulations from Thomas Cromwell and a gift from the Lady Lyle. Henry VIII had a feeling that Anne knew little about English customs and the language, so he sent to her a gentlewoman by the name of Mistress Gilman. Anne's final weeks in Cleves were spent with her mother and her sister Amelia, preparing for her trip to her new home. 
England. Part of this preparation was to have a wardrobe that was fit for a queen, all in the German fashion. This was very different from the English fashion, and one must wonder if Mistress Gilman had recommended some English styles. All of Anne's preparations took time, and this caused a delay in her arrival in England. Henry VIII and his English subjects were anxiously awaiting their new queen. It had been two years since the Tudor queen graced the court. When her departure day finally arrived, one can imagine that Anne's goodbyes to her family must have been difficult. Yet she was off on a new adventure and was going to be Queen of England. She left Cleves with a train of 263 people. Quite impressive. On the 11th of December, 1539, Anne finally arrived in English territory. No expense was spared on the reception of Anne in her new kingdom. She spent her first night in Exchequer, and the whole town is said to have come out to greet her. She was very pleased with the welcome she was receiving. Finally, 16 days after entering her future husband's kingdom, at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, Anne of Cleves landed in Dover. From there, Sir Thomas Cheney escorted her to Deal Castle. Deal Castle's construction had only recently been completed, and it was a perfect location to house Anne and her retinue to freshen up and change clothes, but was not meant for a long stay. The Duke and Duchess of Suffolk were there to greet Anne and escort her to a more suitable Dover castle. The trip from Deal to Dover was about seven and a half miles, and they arrived around 11 o'clock in the evening. Travel to her final destination was delayed by weather, both Anne and Henry were anxious to meet one another. As King Henry VIII was tracking her progress, he knew that she would spend the day resting in London and saw this as an opportunity to act on a centuries-old tradition. Elizabeth Norton said it best in her book about Anne of Cleves, quote, Five members of his privy chamber disguised in marble-colored cloaks rode down from Greenwich to Rochester to surprise Anne. In chivalric tradition, the king was supposed to visit his bride in disguise, and she, due to the love between them, was meant to immediately recognize her husband, in spite of the fact that the couple had never met. End quote. Henry had always been known to be a romantic. Think back to his love letters to Anne Boleyn. He believed himself in love with Anne of Cleves, and that she would most definitely return the feeling and recognize him in disguise. The plan was to send Sir Anthony Brown in to inform Anne of Cleves that he had brought a New Year's gift from King Henry for her. Sir Anthony Brown then reported after what had happened. When he looked upon Anne, he did not see the resemblance to the portrait by Holbein and knew that King Henry would not be pleased. When he returned to King Henry after telling Anne of his gift, he did not warn Henry of her appearance. The king went into Anne's chamber with no idea of what would happen, but was excited and hopeful that she would recognize him. Unfortunately, Anne was distracted, looking out her window at bull baiting happening in the courtyard. She had met many new people during her stay, and she was tired and didn't immediately acknowledge the disguised king. Henry, trying to get his future bride's attention, handed her a token. She still seemed uninterested, so he showed her again. When he still did not get a reaction from her, he resorted to kissing and hugging her. Anne was thrown off by this behavior, as it was not what she had experienced from guests thus far but had not put two and two together that the man in disguise was the King of England. Henry left, upset of course, and returned dressed in all his finest. He greeted Anne and appears to have acted like nothing awkward had just happened. He then led her into a private chamber so they could get better acquainted. It was that original meeting that most likely formed Henry VIII's opinion of Anne of Cleves. He liked her not and did not want to marry her. In his own words, quote, 
When I saw her at Rochester, the first time that ever I saw her, it rejoiced my heart that I had kept me free from making any pact or bond before with her till I saw her myself. For then, I assure you, I liked her so ill, and so far contrary to that she was praised, that I was woo that ever she came to England." When Henry VIII was first made aware of the friendship and union that could come from Cleves, he looked forward to it, ever the politician and romantic he was. He was excited because he had heard of her beauty and her virtuousness. Once he met Anne in person, he immediately doubted the betrothal and wanted to find a way out. Cromwell could not find an easy way out, and so the wedding would go on. Anne of Cleves at this time had only been taught a minimal amount of English by Mistress Gilman and generally communicated through interpreters. It is likely that she was unaware of how her future husband felt about her because of this, and she was sure that he had no idea that she was not attracted to him. This match was a complete failure as far as physical attraction goes. Not uncommon in royal marriages, but not the way that either of them expected this to go. With that being said, Anne kept her chin up and continued to smile and be merry. Once Henry VIII realized that he must marry Anne or risk upsetting the Duke of Cleves, who could in turn form an alliance with his enemies, he signed documents granting Anne land, which was part of her dower. Anne was informed on the evening of January 5th that she would marry the king the following day. This is the event that she had traveled so far for and was prepared to fulfill her commitment. Anne still had no idea that the king was not pleased with her. Henry, on the other hand, spent the evening wallowing in self-pity. On the day of their wedding, Anne woke early to prepare for the day that would make her queen. With the help of her ladies, she was dressed in the finest gown that she had brought from Cleves. Chronicler Edward Hall noted that the bride was wearing a gown of rich cloth of gold, set full of large flowers of great and orient pearl, made after the Dutch fashion. Her long, yellow hair was hanging loose, which was the custom, and on her head she wore a crown of gold with great stones. Around her neck and waist were jewels of great value. Once she was prepared for the wedding, Anne was to wait for Henry Bordshire, the second Earl of Essex, to escort her. However, he had not showed up and was apparently running late. In his place, Henry VIII sent Thomas Cromwell to lead Anne to the church. When Cromwell arrived, so did the Earl of Essex, and so Cromwell left. When Cromwell returned to the king's side, Henry said to him and a group of lords, My lord, if it were not to satisfy the world and my realm, I would not do that I must do this day for no earthly thing. And then he walked away to the chapel, surely stomping his feet like a child. When Anne arrived at the chapel, it is said that she had most demure countenance and sad behavior. She passed through the king's chamber, all the lords going before her till they came to the gallery where the king was, to whom she made low curtsies and observances. Thomas Cromer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, performed the ceremony at eight o'clock in the morning on the Feast of Epiphany, and in place of her brother, Anne was given away by the Count of Overstein. During the ceremony, Anne performed as she must, quietly speaking English, until on her finger was placed a ring which was engraved with, God send me well to keep. Upon the conclusion of the ceremony, the couple walked hand in hand to the king's closet, where they heard mass together for the first time as husband and wife. From there, the newlyweds went to their wedding banquet. Later in the afternoon, it was said that Anne changed into a gown that was considered to be of masculine cut. Like things weren't bad enough with Henry not being attracted to her, now she was also wearing more unattractive clothing. 
The couple had supper together and then attended a program of masks and other entertainment, after which the couple were put to bed. Some believe that Anne's mother, Maria, had not felt it necessary to acquaint her daughter with, well, information about what would occur in the marriage bed. Others say that it was the custom of the time for the mother to teach her daughter such things and that Anne knew what to expect. We'll never know for certain. On the other side of the bed was the obese King Henry, who knew all too well what should be done. He had intended to perform his duty and consummate the marriage. After running his hands all over his bride's body, he gave up and went to sleep. Evidently, he was not up to the task. The following day, Henry VIII was in a terrible mood, unable to perform his husbandly duties in the marriage bed would normally be so embarrassing, but to Henry, it was proof that this marriage was all wrong. The king even told influential courtiers that he was unable to consummate the marriage and that he had found her body disordered and indisposed to excite and provoke any lust in him, and that she could not be a virgin. He then clarified his comments to Sir Thomas Hennage that the reason he believed Anne not to be a virgin was because she had loose breasts and other tokens. He also claimed that she smelled. Then the king told his doctor, William Butts, that this failure to consummate the marriage was not due to impotence on his part because he had experienced wet dreams during his wedding night, so he could perform. Just not with his new bride. Interestingly enough, we know of a time when Henry was with Anne Boleyn that he experienced impotence because it was brought up during the trial of her brother George. So there we have it. Anne of Cleves was now Queen of England. Henry VIII was unhappy with the union and claims he could not consummate the marriage, but felt he definitely could perform the task with other women. And Anne of Cleves is still completely unaware that her time as queen will be short-lived. We'll stop there for today and continue on with the story next week in part two. Thank you so much for joining me today for this Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Until next time.